Um, well, good morning. Um, I'm delighted to be here to chair today the session uh, we have on crypto and digital assets, hubris, nemesis, and catharsis. And those of you who are schooled in Greek tragedy will already be looking forward to the story as it unfolds. Um, so you'll know me, I'm Mike Wardle. I'm um, the CEO at uh, ZN. Um, I'll be chairing today's session. My job really is to uh, do a few housekeeping things and then uh, give the floor to uh, our guest, Professor Alistair Milne. Uh, just briefly to say uh, a thank you uh, to our sponsors. Uh, we're very fortunate at the FS Club to have a range of sponsors who allow us to uh, run these sessions and to bring um, guests to share their insights and uh, expertise with you. Just a word on today's programme. Uh, very simply, my job is to do the housekeeping and get out of the way. Um, we'll have about a 20-minute presentation from Alistair. Um, and then Q&A session. Uh, if, for those of you who haven't used uh, the GoToWebinar uh, system before, uh, the way to put a question to the system is to find the question tab uh, on your dashboard on the screen, uh, type in the question, that will come to us and I will field those uh, during the Q&A session. Uh, the session today is being recorded, um, so you have an opportunity, uh, if you uh, want to go back and revisit any of it or you want to share it with um, your friends, uh, there'll be that opportunity and the recording will probably be up. Uh, within about 48 hours uh, on the event page. Um, that's all by way of introduction. Um, and so ready to uh, pass on to introduce um, Alistair Milne, Professor of Financial Economics at Loughborough University and someone who's done a lot of thinking in the whole space of digital assets, uh, crypto. Uh, Alistair, the floor is yours. We're delighted to have you with us. Uh, thank you, Mike. And I'm, I'm beginning to lose count. I think this is possibly the third of these webinars I've done uh, uh, over the years with the FS Club. You know, it's a pleasure uh, to be here again. Um, those who, who haven't come across me or my work before, I'm university-based, so you know, my main jobs are teaching and, and writing erudite papers, but I, I've focused a, a lot of my time and attention on transaction banking. So there's not um, both capital markets, retail payments, um, for more than 20 years. So uh, with all the all the growing interest in fintech and in particular in crypto, I think I've um, you know felt I've been in a good position to put in some, should we say more more independent views, not necessarily driven by the latest fad. Uh, and that, that that's inspired the title, which I'll say a little bit more about in a moment. Uh, there's a whole lot of supporting research, so if you uh, you know if you're suffering from insomnia and you want to get into the details, I try to make this stuff readable. I, I particularly there's a there's a current paper which is not yet published, um, which I'll I'll certainly be uh, seeking to put in the couple into the public domain in the next uh, couple of months, which is focusing on. Um, you know much the same issues as I'm talking about today, and there's other related work. Um, I um, the um, the paper in the Journal of Money, Credit and Banking, for example, is uh, looking closely at some of the terminological issues in, in this world. Sorry, sorry, yep. for, sorry, we can't see your slides yet. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, so we, we lost the sharing. Um, I'm a bit surprised that look show screen. I've got screen monitor one. Is that, you should be seeing supporting papers. Yes, we are now, thank you. Okay. Not quite sure why that got lost, but there we are. Um, yeah, so uh, pause for that. So, so this is me, and I'm just describing some of the background work. Um, I thought we'd start with an audience poll. I think might be a position to uh, to help this because uh, I get a view of 
Um, this is a topical um, issue. Um, HM Treasury reflecting um, Andrew Griffiths uh, uh, as the lead minister has been taking a view that there's an opportunity uh, for London and, and UK financial markets to be globally leading in, in, as, a, as a respectable uh, jurisdiction for trading and activity in crypto. But actually only today there's been um, released a Treasury Committee report which take uh, rather the opposite view and say that crypto should be viewed as gambling and they're critical of the, the notion that crypto should be given the respectability of being a regulated uh, financial asset. So that, that kind of nicely highlights a basic question. Is crypto a competitive opportunity for London and UK financial services? So uh, say Andrew Griffiths would argue strongly, yes, it is. Um, members of his, uh, the Treasury Committee, including from his own party, seem to have more reservations. Okay, so I think I can see the poll results. Um, I'm not quite sure how I see them on screen. Um, I, I can help there, Alice. I've got them here. So it's um, yes, 48%, no, 52%. Okay, a very, very, uh, very even split, very, very close to uh, the um, kind of a, a Brexit style balance of opinion. Um, I'm, I'm on the no side, I'm on the skeptical side, and uh, let, me, let me go through, you know, the rest of this 20 minutes will be about trying to, in outline, say why I, I tend to agree more with the Treasury Committee. I, I'm not actually, I'm not necessarily arguing it should be regulated as crypto, as gambling, but I'm not sure crypto is such a substantial opportunity for UK financial services. Um, a quick word on my title, yes, this comes from Greek tragedy. Um, so in Greek tragedy, catharsis is experienced by the play's characters and the audience, and this could be a play such as Oedipus Rex. So uh, the, the, the hubris, the pride or misunderstanding, which then leads to the tragic consequences, the nemesis. Um, but then from all of this, we can draw a cleansing and a, a deeper and better understanding. And I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, well, I think that's what we all need is a better understanding of, of crypto, what it really is rather than what the hype uh, says it is. I've also noticed a little bit from the regulatory point of view of a parallel with the early 2000s. I won't, I won't dwell on this too much, but you know, I recall only too well the um, enthusiasm about credit risk management and substantial lobbying that inspired Basel II and, and that in, in effect mask growing risks in 2003, 2007. I don't, I don't see crypto yet as a major systemic risk, but it could grow to become that. Uh, and so it's important to be clear-eyed about what uh, what's actually involved in crypto and digital assets. Um, so um, I'll summarise the takeaways. I won't have time to go into all the detail of the underlying paper, but I, I think what I'm hoping you'll be able to take from this talk is first um, some of this awareness that we often use words very loosely, and uh, I'm, I'm going to highlight what's known as the distinction between permissionless and permissioned holding of digital assets. So in my view, it's the permissionless holding. I'll explain that in a moment. Um, and then the central question for regulation is how do we treat uh, permissioned 
permissioned assets are, are actually not such a problem. How do we treat permissionless assets? And many of the questions that regulation is focusing on at the moment, such as, is this a security, are actually a bit of a side issue. And, and finally, I think promoting crypto as a new asset class is, I think, a little bit confused. Yes, the digital technologies give us new ways of holding assets. So we, we could hold securities or bonds uh, and, and, and other uh, investment classes through digital technologies. Um, cryptocurrencies are new, but they're very narrow. Um, the idea that this is going to be a huge new asset class seems to me a bit of, um, it, it's, it's far from clear that's what's going to happen going forward. Okay, so I've already used up a good part of my 20 minutes. I think I've only um, got about 12 minutes left. Um, but I'm, I'm going to intend to look at a historical review. It'll be brief, but I think it highlights some useful points. I'll spend most of my time on this permissionless permissioned. And then I'll briefly touch on some of the policy issues uh, at the end. And then there'll be the opportunity, as Mike has said, for questions and discussion. Um, so this is the historical review. Um, you can trace this right back to the dawn of the internet, um, which actually goes back to the 1960s. Um, and you know, technology developments can appear suddenly, but they're, they're long, long in gestation. And I think the particular thing I'd often highlight here is the key role of public key encryption. So the, the so-called RSA algorithm was the, uh, the first breakthrough in that based on prime number factorization. Uh, but there's others, elliptic curve uh, cryptography is nowadays the, the, the norm. Um, and the key point there is that it, it, it makes um, uh, a cipher, uh, a hiding a, a message, encrypting a message, uh, essentially immune, uh, unbreakable. Um, and, and that's true even if you're considering the possibility of quantum computing, because it's kind of an arms race. You can always strengthen um, the, the encryption uh, to deal with a, a, a quantum that may not be easy to fit in, retrofit into our systems. Um, I particularly uh, like the you know, some of the early developments, David Chaum, those who follow this area closely will be aware of uh, his work on DigiCash, again, 40 years ago. Um, then there were many developments in the internet. Um, but there's a, there was a lot more before the 2008 Nakamoto white paper, which um, ushered in a Bitcoin and started all the interest in cryptocurrencies. Um, then it was only around 2013, so I did a quick chart from Google Trends. We began to get this more widestream, ma mainstream interest uh, in crypto. Um, so one other thing to pick out from the historical review, and I think this is this is still important today, how much the early interest, you know, this is what motivated Nakamoto or, or whoever he or whoever they are, because it could be... Uh, uh, he, she, or they, we, we don't know who's quite behind the Bitcoin coding, uh, was the so-called cypherpunk movement. And here are the three leaders from a Wired magazine cover of 1993. The whole motive behind Chams Digicast, behind um, the Bitcoin, development of Bitcoin, was to create forms of value and, and exchange on the internet which would have some of the properties of cash, in particular privacy. So the whole movement, the crypto punk movement, uh, punk movement was to uh, protect individuals and their privacy uh, from um, 
from um, encroachment by either private companies or, or government. Um, quite a, a libertarian or hippie perspective. I'm not quite sure. It's John Gilmer's on the right. I'm not sure. Uh, photographed a bit more, a bit more recently, 2018. I'm not sure who he is in the wire photograph. Okay, so let's get on to the key with that background in mind and this emphasis on the, the this libertarian philosophy. Um, I'm going to show you. I'm going to I'm going to jump into a bit of detail, but then try and step back from the detail. So the detail is this rather. Um, I've made an attempt in a table in the in the supporting paper to classify all the key um, crypto asset developments, digital asset developments, with a focus on financial assets. So I, ha I haven't included uh, NFTs or non-fungible tokens that some of you heard of, and I should squeeze in ICOs, but I haven't quite worked out how to do that. Um, the important message here is not the detail, though there is lots going on. Um, I think perhaps the message is it's easy to get confused by the detail. Um, and, and the key point I'd make is to distinguish the top panel. So you'll see there's three rows in, in a top panel, which are the permissionless crypto or digital assets. So they include cryptocurrencies, stable coins, and, and also all the, the most recent developments are what might be called programmable blockchain. Um, so some of you may have heard of decentralized finance or DeFi, um, Uniswap being the most important uh, exchange. But un unlike um, uh, Binance or, or, or the failed FTX, Uniswap is purely code based, which I think gives its users a, a, a and, and purely transparent. So it gives it gives its users of Uniswap. Um, a lot more confidence, I think, in, in, in exactly what their risk exposures are. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But the, the key thing I'm emphasizing in, in highlighted in red is that all of that is permissionless. Um, it's open source. Anybody can go in and use it. Um, uh, then we can distinguish that from a variety of uh, permissioned digital assets, which use some related technologies, especially uh, so-called distributed ledger technologies um, but the as I'll discuss in a moment the fact that is they're permissioned you need to go through an institution in order to get access to them so that would include wholesale initiatives like Finality or RTGS Global various forms of e-money um, uh, uh, various forms of retail distributed ledger money um, so DM, well, that project's failed, but USDC coin, which essentially are in both spaces. They're in the permissionless space and potentially in the permission space as well as a, as a regulated form of money. Um, and of course, CBDC. Uh, and I think it's clear uh, that any CBDC project is going to be a, a permission system. We're, we're, we're going to know the identities of those involved. Uh, and then finally, there's some broader applications of the underlying technology. Um, so we, we might put things like trade finance or um, uh, syndicated loans, um, uh, commercial or residential property uh, and other assets which are relatively liquid might be put on, on distributed ledger and potentially more easy to trade uh, and price. Um, and a broader general um, desire, which I think, you know, financial market participants have been discussing for 20, 30 years, but how can we automate and take all the costs out of our operational systems? 
the key point again the permissionless is very different from all the potentially valuable permissioned activities um okay so i've only got about five minutes left so i'm going to make sure i need to take the next bit a little bit slowly and get the, what i think is the key point across um the key distinction between permissionless and permissioned um now i particularly draw attention to what i think is an excellent report by the law commission um dealing with uh, for, for england and wales which was dealing with a central problem for our uh, our legal colleagues which is how do you define property rights in uh, permissionless uh, digital uh, assets and, and so they proposed what they call a digital object with the key criteria being that it's something which exists independently of persons or of the legal system and that's the key feature the one i think we should all have at the top of our minds about cryptocurrencies uh, and indeed stable coins um you know it, whatever happens in terms of institutional failures those uh, those permissionless claims are still out there they can still be transacted that their value may be uncertain um even a stable coin may may fall substantially in value uh, uh, below its par it could like uh, terra luna fall to zero um but that doesn't stop you transacting in it and move, moving it uh, around using these permissionless systems um open source digital records and what's known as a decentralized consensus mechanism so that's the famous proof of work in bitcoin um we now have proof of stake which is much more energy efficient in blockchain but clear divide permissionless crypto versus permissioned uh, mainstream now the academic i'm seeking to get a, a peer-reviewed publication and at the center of that is this proposition uh, and the key of that proposition and everything else in the paper in this talk follows from this if you've got a permissioned digital ledger dlt although you're creating a construct which is similar to that used in cryptocurrencies ultimately you have gatekeepers you have um legal entities financial firms or other firms that are responsible for validating the records just like my bank is responsible for validating my or your bank account records and as a result all the conventional law and regulation still applies um, once you go permissioned you're simply dealing with a, a somewhat more, more collective cooperative um, delivery of conventional financial products hopefully more efficient um, avoiding some of the complexities of our, of, and uh, dealing in a more open and transparent way with things like counterparty risk but not fundamentally different from what's gone before whereas permissionless is fundamentally different um, and i'll just briefly comment and I, I know i'm very much pressing up against my my time now i think um th this is sort of a couple of more term further terminal uh, the permission permissionless to me is central but i think that then relates to certain other should we say um terminological ambiguity so there's a lot of talk about smart contracts but again smart contracts are only really new in a permissionless context where everything is in the code if if your um if your system is if your record system keeping system your ledger where where digital assets are held is permissioned then ultimately you're still talking about 
simply automation and the possibility of unwinding a contract by getting the controlling entities uh, to agree, the possibility of taking them to court and saying, no, this is, this is not what was legally agreed. So the smart contracts are no longer irrevocable. Um, it's, they're, they're only deliver complete finality in the context of permissionless um, transactions. Um, so we're, we're confusing pre-coded contracts for exchange of permissionless digital objects with automated execution of contracts in or for all other forms of property. Um, another term which I think is very confusing is tokenization. The whole uh, paper I referred to in the earlier slide is saying this is a, a false analogy. And it actually doesn't make much, it, what makes sense is to talk about an asset which is directly held, um, uh, so not the liability that's held indirectly through a custodian bank, for example, but the word tokenization can introduce a lot of confusion. Okay, so this is where I'm going to finish essentially with, with a brief word on public policy issues. I think my final main comment is that what we're really talking about is a, a new world of broader data access. Um, that's what cryptography, so to go back to the historical timeline, um, the emergence of public key cryptography, and it's increasingly wider application. What cryptography supports is very finely controlled access. It, it's a big issue in, not just in financial services, it's a big issue in uh, public health, for example, um, deciding who has access to, to individual records, and we have to manage privacy concerns. And, you know, I think this is, this is not a, a one-time revolution, it's a trend. I think there's, you know, and this is a, a topic for many FS Club seminars, there are huge opportunities for operational improvement in financial services based on cryptographically secured data access. Um, but crypto assets are actually almost the permissionless crypto assets or are, are not really relevant to that. Uh, on the policy issues, I'm not going to attempt to go through uh, talk in any detail in any of the slides. Um, there, there was a legal uh, issue about property law, which I mentioned before. But the key, um, I think the leading regulatory response are the EU MICA regulations, which I think are sensible. Um, because that you, you can't regulate permissionless assets directly. What you can do is regulate um, firms, legal entities uh, or individuals who provide access or access to or promote um, um, transactions in crypto assets. Uh, but I think the key thing which I think is missing in, for example, current uh, HM Treasury led discussion of, of crypto regulation, not more clearly separating permissionless and permissioned. Um, and the open question is, well, to what extent do we allow financial institutions to, tr to transact in permissionless assets? And in particular, uh, support transactions for unsophisticated retail investors. Um, I'll skip there's a, the, the paper itself, which I'll, and I'll have to take questions or follow up afterwards. A few more comments about stable coins and about a nascent asset class. Um, I think the main point on crypto ad digital as a nascent asset class is that there's no underlying cash flows. Neither cryptocurrencies nor stable coins um, offer you an income. 
they may be valuable for, from liquidity purposes, but they're not really that different from fiat currencies from a liquidity end user point of view. You may, if you're a, a crypto funk, a libertarian, think it's useful to have some cryptocurrencies that do not depend on the state as an alternative to gold, as a, a, um, a, as a source of value in the event of the collapse of uh, um, capitalism and the end of civilization as we know it. I think I'd trust gold more in that context because the, the internet itself might fail in such extreme circumstances. But there is an argument for holding some crypto as, a, um, as an asset to protect you against a doomsday scenario. Uh, or just because you don't want to be have anybody snooping into your life but but otherwise i think it's minor um there's different forms of tokenized assets i'll skip that regulation of DeFi again that can be done in a very similar way to crypto um so a, a rather rushed end uh, because i wanted to um uh you know emphasize again the the key issue is permission as permissioned and crypto properly regarded as permissionless is from my point of view must remain relatively minor we can take we can use all the uh, potential technological advantages which have emerged in the context of crypto but we can use them in a permissioned way which means essentially using the same regulations and same arrangements as we have for conventional financial assets we're going to do the poll one more time and then there should still be um at least 10 minutes for for question and answer um Oh, yes, I was going to comment that the catharsis in my mind is the realization that there's much less new in crypto than many of the hyped um, proponents would suggest. Um, yes, there's a hugely valuable technology, but it's it's really not as fundamentally new as some claim. Should we repeat the audience poll? Um, as I say, I can, I can repeat my conclusions while people are thinking about their response. We'll see if the needle has moved at all. Um, but yeah, my fundamental point is that, yes, crypto is new, but it's, it's new in this rather narrow uh, area of permissionless assets. And my judgment is, is that neither regulators nor market participants uh, ultimately will want to have any substantial part of our portfolios in a permissionless um, um, form, we'll, we'll end up sticking with permissioned, and that's not really very different from what we have already, except potentially from a technological point of view, it's uh, it's a lot more efficient. Uh, uh, so we, we have the results in, um, and okay. it's shif shifted enormously slightly. And there's now yes 47, no 53, so we're almost exactly where we were at the beginning. <laughs> okay, people need to reflect. I'd. Uh, um, I'm hoping my 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 I developed a, a strong knockout blow, but clearly there are many rounds of this uh, this debate um, or prize fight, if it is, to, to still to be had. Um, okay, we've got time for uh, qu questions and answers. I think we still have around ten minutes, so let's see what comes in. Well, thank you very much, uh, Alistair, for that um, run across. Um, some of your thoughts um, on where we are. Uh, with a bit of a sprint, but I'm happy happy to elaborate on anything which didn't come across too clearly. Super. Um, David Birch um, said, you know, he rather likes the gambling idea. Uh, <laughs> and of course, <laughs> it refers obviously to the Treasury report on how we should regulate uh, crypto. 
yeah. um, which has you know, opened up the consultation question. Um, so, I mean, I guess is, you know, if you were to apply the gambling analogy, um, how would you regulate crypto from that perspective? Is it looking at the institutions as in the uh, yeah. EU meter? So I'd certainly like to see all those warnings for retail investors that we saw, you know, I mean, we get an immense amount of gambling advertising on TV screens, but at least it does come with those warnings about uh, um, you know, the importance of, 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 of not getting sucked in to the gambling, the potential addictions. Um, look, I think it's still an open question. I think the way I would phrase it from a practical point, I think this is where I'm more supportive of the HMT reviews, they don't actually say that they're trying to create a framework for regulation and, and they want the FCA to be given that responsibility for it. The FCA could in fact in turn take the decision, well we, you know, this would be rules not the fun, in the fundamental regulation, this is actually very akin to a gambling product. So the FCA could then take the decision to bring in very strong retail protections which would include warnings similar to those we see for gambling on uh, uh, whenever any institution is involved in you know, potentially supporting retail um, investment in, in crypto. So uh, I, I usually find I'm of a similar point of view to Dave and always value his, his opinion. So I don't think we're actually very far apart on this and it, it's simply a and I, I'm not sure practically if you could put all the crypto over to the gambling commission because there will there will be more sophisticated investors who are using some of the permissionless crypto experimenting with it in in a, in a, in a more so so i think in practical terms even though i agree with the spirit of it being viewed as gambling i'm, I'm not sure ultimately that'll be the best decision david sort of follows up by saying his understanding is that many people who've invested in crypto or hold crypto have lost money um yeah. Just musing whether there's a lawsuit uh, for mis-selling around the corner. <laughs> yes, it's kind of, I mean, and maybe even more so in the US where there's been, um, which of course uh, always jump quickly to their, to their lawyers and, and there's been huge problems with um, particularly, I mean, there's a big racial bias. So it's been Afro-Americans in particular have, uh, you know, are overrepresented amongst those who've lost substantially on crypto. A, a temporary reprieve because crypto's bounced back a bit but um it's it's uh i i i absolutely do not underestimate the need for retail protection so if the fca gets this responsibilities they're going to have to put that front and center thank you very much um masinisa amaziani has um, asked how it is that um, central bank digital currencies may help to promote financial inclusion i just wonder whether you have any thoughts on that <laughs> yeah so that, that, that's a good question i mean more, more broadly it's a good question about okay maybe these private crypto assets uh, uh, don't have really have the legs that some people claim but but central bank digital currency could be could be a big game changer um i'm not so sure it's a game changer for financial inclusion um, in, in the sense that we could promote e-monies for that purpose and they've been quite successful in um, some emerging markets, most notably East Africa and China, but some others as well. Ghana has, changed, has, has had a lot of you know, um, success in, in, in addressing financial inclusion recently. Um, and, and yes, there are a number of countries worldwide, Nigeria notably, 
promoting CBDC as a, as, as a but it, it's not the CBDC itself that's that's critical. It's the ability of a easy to use mobile e-money, whether that's technically a CBDC or a, a, a privately developed, um, possibly fully reserved e-money, I think is less important. Uh, the only other thing I'd say on CBDC, I think there are there are potentials for um, Two, two related comments. There are, there are, I think, there are valuable opportunities in wholesale finance for use of CBDC as a settlement asset. Um, but I'd say these are all going to be permissioned. Maybe that's the other comment I should make in terms of that. You know, whether you're using a CBDC in Nigeria to address financial inc inclusion, or we're trying to use a CBDC here in London to. Um, um, improve financial market performance liquidity and and access um, it's going it's going to be a permission variety not permissionless so it's it's actually not that different from what we do already okay um, yeah the, the, uh, the issue I guess from James Olive here is do you think there's a difference in the custody um, of permissioned as against permissionless uh, distributed ledger? systems uh, that, that's a great that's a great question and it it it, it really focuses on this notion of um tokens which i said you know be careful with that word because people it, it's often used in rather confused fashion so i think one possibility which you know we're, and there are arguments that we should be going in this direction is that uh, instead of holding our securities in uh, custodian banks um we should actually be holding them directly with the csd on a uh, central securities depository but actually it, it's we'd still be investors would still be need custodians in order to to manage all the um uh, all the tax and um corporate governance um elements of, of, of portfolio management um, they'd still need them for for, for, for for tracking their portfolios so I think it would it wouldn't be such a fundamental shift for the user's point of view um, what it could do is it could help promote greater transparency making it easier for um, corporates to know who their shareholders are and communicate directly with them um, it does raise some questions about security of borrowing and liquidity so uh, and, and and I think it also raises questions about when we hypothecate or rehypothecate assets in um, in order to support market liquidity. So I, I I don't have very clear answers. I think it's a great question. I think it's one of the areas we should be doing a lot more research on. And my bottom line again, it's all going to be permissioned. So it's not really going to be crypto in my view at all. Um, George Bynor um, has jumped in to ask, how do you feel about NFTs as an opportunity to represent evidence of ownership of assets? <laughs> uh, that, that's interesting. And uh, there is an, a, a, another pol big policy agenda uh, is, is to do with um, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the um, use of digital technology in, in global trade. So there's a, a big policy effort to replace um, uh, bills of lading as, as paper documents and letters of credit with their digital equivalents. Um, 
I think the interesting thing then comes from a link again I think it's more of a practical question it'll still be permission for sure um, will it be helpful from a technology point of view to um, have a, a, a decentralized ledger a, um, a single record or do we want some other form of verification to prove that it really that it really is the you know the asset really belongs to to it belongs to so whether that's a centralized database which would be the conventional way of doing it I, mean, I don't i don't have problems with my credit card getting it accepted um and where necessary they could when you know when the when the transaction is online they can check that the the the, the credit card is not stolen um there may be other circumstances where we're having a decentralized um dlt nft type uh, representation may actually be advantageous but it's a it's a practical question rather than being one of, of principle Thank you very much. Um, Hugo Innes has um, co commented that the challenge of crypto has been that it's tried to recreate the banking system, but quite badly, uh, yeah, in, a in, a, in fractional banking, etc., and became a sort of hype, and you know, the only way is up. Um, but he just sort of wonder whether the good thing that crypto has done is focusing the need to reduce friction costs in banking. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. I think the there's been a huge discussion about DLT, and that's. You know, I would go back to my title. It's the, you know the, the hubris was the thinking that something as uh, a new a new form of database called a, a blockchain or distributed ledger would somehow of itself solve all the frictions in banking. I mean, one of the things we've seen over the past couple of years is a huge amount of disappointment in the DLT space. Uh, very many of the most touted projects, most notably the ASX project at uh, uh, the uh, Australian Stock Exchange um, have been halted have been, and said, no, no, that's not the way to go. Um, so we've had an oversimplified view about how sharing of data and data access can, can improve um, efficiency. So I think the, you know, that's the, that's the, um, the, the nemesis um, DLT has hit its ne nemesis, but I think the catharsis is the real is the realization. Yes, data access and data sharing can support uh, huge efficiency gains, but we have to we can't hide away from the governance uh, issues, the concerns about commercial confidentiality, um, and indeed the need to to maintain these systems as well as just create them. So I think we're going to come to a new, more realistic era where we will gain the benefits. Thank you very much. Um, Richard Metcalf, just said, could, could you, would you mind repeating, going over again, sort of the rationale for not treating um, some of these assets as gambling? Um, <laughs> I, I'm saying it's an open practical question, so I, I, I don't have a strong opinion. Um, I, my immediate reservation is that, well, firstly, we can't stop people using them because they're, because they're permissionless. And I think inevitably they're going to be um, more wholesale, sophisticated investor um, involvement in crypto and, and crypto-related assets. And, and so to, to, try, to try and draw a, a sharp line and say these are not financial assets, um, you know, even sophisticated investors need some form of regulatory protection. Um, uh, and, and so I think just treating them purely as uh, under giving the responsibility to the gambling commission i think probably is not the way to go but if the fca does regulate and says no we're going to view them 
as gambling assets. I think that could be quite a sensible outcome. Thank you very much. Um, just a, a couple of comments to, uh, to, to put in before we go to the final question. Um, first of all, uh, George Ryan has just um, you know, said yes. Well, the question is, who would you sue for mis-selling? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and and, and David Bird, David Birch just commented that the sort of cypherpunk movement um, maybe wasn't as hippie as he thinks. Timothy May, um, after he left the cypherpunk sort of leadership, um, certainly um, was known for quite a few racist views and quite problematic views. So uh, libertarian, maybe, but maybe not hippie. Um, <laughs> final, yeah, final. there may be a few racist hippies. I don't know. It's not quite my era. Indeed. Um, just the, the final final issue is uh, Philip Middleton's just asked you to comment on um, the balance between the need, need for enhanced proofs of digital identity on the one hand versus the desire for anonymity on the other. Um, oh, that's a, that's a big question, which we, we probably need another seminar. I'm not pretty, another work, and I'm not sure, webinar. I'm not sure I'm the the best ideal person. Look, it's it's, it's a very tricky trade-off, and. I think I, I give some personal reflection. I, I it's quite cultural. Um, so I spend a lot of time. I have spent a lot of time working in Nordic countries, particularly Finland, where I've uh, done extensive work. And you know, the, the Finns have this very open view. If I if, if you're in Finland, if you want to know about your neighbour's tax returns, you can look them up online. Everything's open, <laughs> and uh, and they have pretty good digital identities. So so their choice is at one end of the spectrum. It's much we don't care so much about privacy. Um, it's actually a bit boring to look up Nico Hakkinen's tax returns. You just learn he's quite wealthy. Um, whereas uh, in the U here in the UK, and I think even more in the US, where we're much more concerned about those privacy concerns. So it's a tricky balance, and I think it's it's something that's quite cultural, obviously cultural and political, and it'll it has to be a different balance in every jurisdiction. Well, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> we have really reached the end of time. Final comment from David Birch suggesting that um, the people to sue are people like Paris Hilton and the other celebrities who are pushing uh, cryptocurrency um, through their influencer channels. Um, I don't personally follow Paris Hilton on social media, so uh, I can't, can't vouch for that. Um, so as we, as we come to a close, um, some thank yous. Uh, first of all, again, to our sponsors uh, for enabling these series of webinars. Uh, it's a, a real privilege to have such support. Um, so thank you to them. And then uh, just to mention uh, the forthcoming events, um, we, you know, do keep an eye uh, on our website uh, for what's coming in the future. Um, but we have quite a lot going on. So tomorrow, construction the future, uh, ESG and supply chains in construction. Uh, Friday, uh, talking about threats to resilience. Um, an in-person event um, on uh, Tuesday in London, uh, catalyzing the Green Development Pact through financial architecture reform. Uh, quite a major issue and looking forward to the zero net zero summit on uh, on wednesday and then parametric insurance in, in 2023 uh, on, on wednesday next week so an awful lot going on do keep an eye uh, on the websites and do join us for any of those uh, finally just to offer my thanks to you to the audience for uh, turning up and engaging with us um, <laughs> so well in a session um, but mostly um, alistair Thank you so much for your uh, presentation and the simulating uh, thoughts that it cre created. Um, normally on a presentation, I'd throw open the floor for a big round of applause, but we can't do that today, but I'm sure the audience would want to join me uh, in thanking you very much uh, for your time and your contribution this morning. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, we'll see you soon, thank you.